0: And today's historic agreement marks a new beginning for all of us in Northern Ireland, on the island of Ireland and in these islands. Looking back on this now 25 years later, the press conference after we signed the Good Friday Agreement, Tony Blair and I had to go outside and speak to the press. Everyone was tired. It was Good Friday, of course. I flew back to Dublin a few hours later. It really marked the end of a very difficult and at times very tense talks period that went on for many months with the view to bringing peace to the people of Northern Ireland. It will not be an easy task. Our shared past has left us with many bitter legacies. I'm Bertie Ahern, Taoiseach of Ireland from 1997 until 2008 and this is the story of the Good Friday Agreement as I remember it.
1: Good evening from Castle Buildings at Stormont outside Belfast on the day of a truly momentous agreement, promising a fundamental change in the political relationship between North and South and between Britain and Ireland. This historic agreement today enables us at last to start that healing process. All the elements of the British Isles will be able to consult and cooperate together and reflect upon the interactions human, social, cultural, economic, political that have bound us together through the last millennium. Those who believe in a united Ireland can make that case now by persuasion, not violence or threats. The agreement creates new institutions, the Northern Ireland Assembly, to restore to the people the fundamental democratic right to govern themselves.
2: The future's yours, And what we can do today is get a future that gives you a better chance of having a good life.
0: Episode one, the path to peace. One of the things I'm trying to do with this podcast is to give an insight to the present generation, but also to the rising generation and to those in our schools who were not born at the time, but are now studying the issue. Like the sixth year students in my grandchildren's school in Malahide in North County Dublin. I'm sorry for interrupting your normal class. Uh, you should be doing your economics or your history or whatever class you're, you're in. So it's great to, to come along and, and, and talk to you. Uh, I was asked today to talk about the Good Friday Agreement. This is the Good Friday Agreement. This is, this is my copy that. Uh, I had from day one, 25 years ago, next April. Um, not a, a huge, huge document, but uh, a very difficult document to to negotiate. And I suppose like most um, you know, documents that are important in, a- around the world, it's, um, I'm checking myself to see how many pages in it. I can't remember, it's 35 pages uh, in it. So uh, fairly, fairly simple. You can ha- have a gook at it at the end if you. you'll have it online, but um, that, that this was the, the one that was produced on the day uh, back 25 years ago. i 'm going to try and give you a feel. I don 't want to bore you with details and you know statistics and do your head in on it. but I suppose the, the troubles in the north in our history, I suppose if you, if you go back and those of you who are doing history will, will know that the uh, existing uh, division, uh, in Ireland goes back to, to the Government of Ireland Act of 1920. That's what divided this country and um, at that time the Anglo-Irish Treaty was signed in 1921 and after centuries of British rule, 800 years of British rule the island was divided. 26 counties, Republic where, where you all live uh, and the six uh, counties in the north and um, that was Northern Ireland. And from 1921 uh, to 72. Um, the North ran as a separate place. It, it was independent of Westminster, independent of, of the London government, um, but um, ran as as a, a Northern Ireland, a sixth county Northern Ireland. And um, I suppose the, the difficulty with all of that is all the power remained exclusively with one side in the North. It remained with what was unionism, Protestantism, um, and th- they did not give uh, a look-in to the Nationalists, the, the Catholics, and that all broke up in the Civil Rights Movement in 1968 and started that started the, the troubles. And uh, from 68 uh, all the way up to when we did this agreement in 1998, it was 30 years, 30 years in, in your lifetime. Uh, your your Moontore Kevin there remembers all 30 years of it, but it, it's, a, it's a long span. Against all the odds, and the Belfast Telegraph famously gave us a 5% chance, the British government, my own government, and eight political parties from all sides of the divide came together in 1997 and into 1998 under the chairmanship of a U.S. senator to negotiate the Good Friday Agreement. All of them will be speaking with me throughout this podcast.
1: When the negotiation began, I said to the delegates on the first day, if we are ever to reach agreement, it must be your agreement. We were prepared relentlessly to just stay up through the
0: night and keep going. Ultimately, it was just determination to drive this thing through. We were agreeing something that six months ago,
1: nobody believed was possible. At some point, the violence had to stop.
2: To what extent should democratic governments be talking to terrorists when they still had a big arsenal?
1: But we had to proceed and find a way forward. It was just as simple as that. We had to find
2: a way forward. You could feel it in the air. It made loyalism and unionism more determined than ever that we needed to reach this agreement.
1: Any of us who were talking to each other were all saying, How do you read Trimble? Is he going to be up for anything or not? I need to go back to my people with a big red slap on my face that you guys have given me and say, Look what you've created. You can't simply agree this with the British because the Unionists will want something more. The whole point of the Good Friday Agreement was to make politics in Northern Ireland boring.
0: Maybe his justice will be done, but perhaps not in this earth.
2: I remember meeting you during you were saying, "Oh well, you guys have no guns. Well, should we go out and get some so that we become seen as more serious players?"
1: You know, he had climbed the mountain. A big black cloud had lifted. I remember there, there was a huge sense of euphoria, you know, everywhere. It was just incredible looking back.
0: The Good Friday Agreement was, of all the things I did over a long political career, was the greatest, without any doubt, whatever. The biggest thing that was achieved by the Good Friday Agreement, in my view,
1: is that we stopped the killing. We basically stopped the killing. Hi, Bertie. Hiya,
0: Bill. How are you?
1: I just want everyone to know that uh, there were many wonderful things about being president, but one of the greatest was the opportunity to play a role in this. We're, we're very honoured that you came to speak to us today, Bertie. Uh, so we've got a, a really good group of six years. I know there, there are loads of questions later, but we'll let you take the floor. Thanks, Bertie.
0: Yeah. The agreement um, really was about trying to do three things. It was divided into three areas. Northern Ireland, how we would deal with politics in Northern Ireland, how we would put um, a new life into Northern Ireland, just Northern Ireland, a new assembly, a new executive, but how things would work in Northern Ireland. second one was how Dublin and Belfast would work, north-south, that was called, and the third one was east-west, London, Dublin. So they were the the three strands, and still known as the three strands. Northern Ireland, what happened north-south, what happened east-west with London. And that's still the way. And then we had to deal with the big problems, prisoners. There were thousands of prisoners in jail. Uh, Some of the men, uh, I had to deal with a smaller number, but a number of prisoners here who had killed guards, who had murdered uh, Garda Shikona, uh, they were lifers, as they're called, 40 years service, 40 years jail sentence. So they were, um, we had a number of them who had k- killed guards. We had a number of others, but there were hundreds in the north, hundreds that were not my headache, they were Tony Blair's headache. So we had to deal with the prisoners issue. Then we had to deal with decommissioning of arms. There were a huge amount of arms, enormous amount of arms, unused, we found out afterwards Gaddafi Libya Who was very anti-British um, But he wasn't very helpful to the Irish either He gave five shiploads of arms to the IRA uh, Two of them were caught on the way in So they had three uh, And in the end of the day A huge amount of machine guns and, uh, Rocket launchers, air missiles Were still in their plastic containers When the decommissioning happened But that didn't happen for for many years later so there were a huge amount of arms and we had to try and find out how we were going to get uh, the arms out of it. Then there were issues about equality, uh, how we would change the legal system in the north, how we would bring a just system because uh, people from the nationalist background felt that there was no justice, they had no faith in the police so we had to get uh, to restructure the police service. Now some of the issues we, we solved on the day Other issues, we set up things to deal with them afterwards. Funny enough, policing was a huge problem in Northern Ireland. And the one thing that all the parties agree on, and I can tell you, even though it's 25 years on, they still don't agree on much. Um, They might agree not to kill each other anymore, but they don't agree on much else. They, they, the thing about, they now say that the best thing we did was policing, because we reformed the policing, we changed it, it used to be called the RUC, Royal Ulster Constabulary, now it's PSNI, but it's now seen as an excellent force. It's not 50 Catholic, 50 Protestant, but it's far better than it used to be. And then we, we, we had to deal with the criminal justice system, equality agenda, civil rights, human rights, all of those, those areas, and bring in legislation in those areas. So, so all of those things help. Now, just go back on a few of them that I think are important. We didn't allow all the prisoners out the day this was dealt with. They were allowed out two years later on license. And what that meant was that if you were allowed out of prison, if you were in for 20 years, right, and you were allowed out on license, it meant if you didn't, if, if you were caught doing something again, you were put back into jail to serve the rest of your sentence, whatever sentence was left, and you were charged with your new thing. Now. I was very worried about the prisoners when you let out a few thousand prisoners you say God if they all start reoffending again what happened is that we can now look at it 25 years on very very few literally a handful of prisoners that were released on license ever were were caught again in fact not alone did they not cause trouble when they got out but they became very good people in their communities working with uh, you know ex-combatants and uh, advising young people not to get in trouble and you know, to, to, get in, you know, to go back and most of us said oh Jesus we'll, we'll all be in trouble if they all be offended but they did not the great thing about the, the Good Friday Agreement is now nobody has been killed there's been very little um, violence there's, after we did the agreement 25 years ago there was one horrendous event in Oma um, and that was by dissident Republicans which you often hear about and there's dissident loyalists too. So there's still a small core of people who don't like the Good Friday Agreement. Thankfully, um, they don't cause too much trouble uh, now and again. There, there are, I could, name, I could name the families who are behind most of it. Uh, there, there's not too too many of them, but, but they are dangerous because it doesn't take many people to set off a bomber uh, to deal with it, an atrocity. But by and large, it, it, the North is peaceful.
2: Good
1: evening. Shortly before 11 o'clock this morning, as the nation was about to draw together for its annual act of remembrance, a bomb exploded near the war memorial in Iniskillin, County, Fermanagh. The crowd which had gathered there was given no warning. They were civilians, Catholic and Protestant, young and old, there with their wreaths to remember. The bomb killed 11 of them and injured 63. The dead included three married couples, a retired policeman, a caretaker and a nurse. And then I was aware of somebody squeezing my hand. Mary said, is that you, Dad? And I said, yes. Suddenly, one right. I said, yes, but my hand sore. How are you, dear? All right. Then I heard her scream. When I asked her for the fourth or fifth time, she said, Daddy, I love you very much. That was what the last word she spoke.
2: In 1974, in that April and May were really, really bad times. And we not only were keeping our heads down, but we were looking over our shoulders. We were watching ourselves because of the Ulster Workers' Council's strike. And I was a student about to do exams and we had no electricity. And we had no food. We couldn't go anywhere in transport because there was no petrol. It was like a curfew. The country had closed down and the streets were dangerous.
1: Our house was petrol bombed a couple of times, and there were hoax bombs placed outside. And there was there was sort of graffiti on gable walls all around the place about Dad. It was difficult, but you you know we we um we muddled through.
2: And then I got word that my friend Michael Mallon, had been murdered, and I knew him very well. And he came from the country as well, and. Um we played sport together every Wednesday up at the playing pitches at Queen's and that's where his body was found. He had been hitching a lift as we all did in those days on Sunday night and for him it was start of the week to come back for the exam and he um, was taken to a UDA club and was later found with four bullets in his head and it was tragic and I recall asking who could have done such a terrible thing.
0: That was Monica McWilliams, who would go on to lead the Women's Coalition, and John Hume Jr., whose father played such a significant role in the peace process. The scenes they described there, and that were reported on in the news bulletins you've heard, were the norm on the island of Ireland for so, so many years. During the period of the Troubles... 3,720 people died. 18,000 were injured. 15,600 bombs went off. And 26,000 shootings occurred.
1: This is Londonderry. This is Londonderry on the day of the Apprentice Boys' March. The police are now a quarter of a mile inside the Bogside area. This here is Harvey Street. They've been moved in here after sustaining for some two hours a hail of stones from people on the bogside side of the barricades. Oh. The day here started peacefully enough when the apprentice boys marched around the city to celebrate the 280th anniversary of the relief of Londonderry.
0: From the time uh, I was in school, the time from fifth year, sixth year in school, uh, the conflict in Northern Ireland raged, starting with the civil rights movement, which is really dated from the 5th of October, 1969, when uh, the Stormont leadership decided to use force against those involved in uh, peaceful means, those fighting for equality, uh, better housing, fair education. Um, and the marches went on from there into 1969, where the real Uh, pogroms started where the the real violence started, the burning of Bombay Street, the uh, Battle of the Bogside and all the issues around that. So I think 1998 brought an end to what started there and what really ran all the way up until the mid-90s. As we look back now over, you know, 30, 40 years, um, the trouble started as, as, you know, in the late 60s and really the the extreme violence and the the biggest fatalities and the bombing campaign and you know, through the seventies was at its height, continued on a pace, but the worst years were those seventies. And I suppose there were three attempts at solutions and I always hold the view that everybody that was involved in these negotiations on all sides did their very best um and never critical of their work. So there was Sunningdale in seventy four um, and in Sunningdale there was a, a power sharing agreement uh, that was seen to share power, unfortunately brought down very quickly within weeks by the Ulster workers' strike. Um, and then nothing happened until the 85 um, efforts in the anglo Irish Agreement.
2: I went into this agreement because I was not prepared to tolerate a situation of continuing violence. I want to offer hope to young people particularly that the cycle of violence and conflict can be broken. Our purpose is to secure equal recognition and respect for the two identities in Northern Ireland. Nationalists
0: can now raise their heads, knowing that their position is and is seen to be on an equal footing with that of members of the unionist community. 85, again, gave the Irish government an involvement in Northern Ireland, probably for the first time having a... Uh, involvement, But it was very hard to operate that Because uh, there were so many threats So many dangers to the people Who worked in the so-called bunker In the Irish Secretariat um, And again, that didn't have the support of, of the people Some of the biggest marches ever seen In Northern Ireland happened So, third effort, 1998 And I suppose 1998 has to be looked at In it, just rolling that 90s debate 91, 92 uh, There were talks, all party talks didn't conclude any agreements but they did for the first time and which I found very useful, they did set out what people were in favour of rather than what they were against uh, we all understood the Ulster said no campaign, we all understood the, the violence and the armour in one hand and the ballot box in the other we understood all, all those issues but we didn't have any content uh, to what uh, the parties wanted, so 91 wasn't a success in terms of agreeing anything but it did produce papers and documents that gave a, an indication of where to go, which I found very important afterwards. Uh, 93 Dynasty Declaration, 15 to December 1993, um, Albert Reynolds' work uh, with John Major and many others as well from the churches. Uh, and that effort was to, in a short document, put the aspirations of both sides uh, and what, people want it and what they could do uh, if we had a a ceasefire with a peaceful situation.
1: I can't promise you today that the joint declaration will bring peace. That doesn't lie within my hands. But those who don't respond to it will show that they prefer violence for its own sake because they are now offered a democratic alternative.
2: I said recently that the violence in Northern Ireland had led to
1: walls of wilting flowers and an eternity of tears. If this declaration for peace helps to dry those
0: tears, if it helps to replace the wilting flowers with new growth, then we can ask no more. So that was a very important document and led to the first ceasefires in ninety four. Uh, first of all August end of August 94, Uh, The IRA um, had their first ceasefire since Lena Doon in 72.
1: After weeks of speculation, the long-awaited IRA ceasefire was finally announced this morning. Just after 11 o'clock at a location in central Dublin, an IRA intermediary handed RTE News a copy of the statement plus a cassette, outlining the details of the ceasefire which comes into effect from midnight tonight.
0: And then... And um, moved quickly into the Loyalist ceasefires in mid October uh, of, of, of that year. So um, I think you know, progress was moving forward, and that set the scene, I think, for, for where we hoped we would get to multi party talks in '95. Mistakes were made uh, in that period. The British government wanted decommissioning up front, uh, they wanted to see arms happening before talks would start. Uh, and that led to no progress in 1995. Breakdown of the ceasefire uh, in February 1996. Uh, r- return to violence. Canary Wharf bombing. Manchester bombing. Uh, and we were back into the into the difficulties again. It brought the end to the Forum for Peace and Reconciliation, which was a great pity because that was bringing groups from all areas in the north, cultural, political, religious, and that I suppose moved then quickly um, into us having to try and get the ceasefire back up and running again. Uh, when Tony Blair came in in May 97, I came in June 97, and uh, we had been talking in opposition for a number of years with Mo Molan and others, uh, and we said, well, let's make one big effort at this. We'd had several meetings. We'd met you know, privately, secretly in the Gresham Hotel in Dublin. We'd met publicly in Dáil and in Westminster. Uh, and we said if we both were elected, we would try to get multi-party talks going, try to renew the ceasefire and get going. So I think we, the context of, of Good Friday was all that effort. Um, the ceasefire being restored uh, in July um, 1997, uh, and then uh, the promise of multi-party talks to start thereafter.
1: If I believe that... It was hopeless. If I believed that there was no chance for a peaceful resolution of the problems here, I would not be here. I, I give you my absolute assurance on that.
0: George Mitchell was the independent chair of the talks.
1: I believe there should be a ceasefire because it is the right thing to do in and of itself.
0: He's such a wonderful person and Bill Clinton's role, we remembered for what he did in with Friday, but giving us George Mitchell in the first place was was enormously helpful. And you know, I've kept in touch with George Mitchell over you know, the last twenty five years and life is tough for him now. And you know, he, he's a great a great, great, great person, and his his contribution was enormous. And his sense of of knowing the personalities, of being able to read the personalities, which he I suppose he tuned up from his time as Majority Leader on and, and Capitol Hill uh, but he, he had a, this innate sense of being able to read all these characters and I mean could you imagine anybody else other than George Mitchell who was sent from the President of the United States was seen as a key figure in America a great power of the world and spent about six weeks in Northern Ireland sitting there while the parties abused him and abused everything else whether he should be the chair of the meeting, I mean, it's a it's a hard story, but he he, uh, he he put up with that and he, he got on with us and you know I, I think at the end of the day everybody knows George, regardless of what side or was.
1: There had been several prior efforts, including in the early nineteen nineties, headed by a prominent Australian judicial figure. It didn't succeed and. In looking at the talks from a post-talks perspective, the governments concluded that one of the major problems was that there was a conflict going on. But the talks in the 1990s and earlier had excluded from the talks those parties that had any affiliation with paramilitary organizations. That was, of course, Sinn Féin on the nationalist side and the loyalists on the unionist side. Uh, I was told by government officials on both sides that they concluded that you're not going to be able to end the conflict unless you can bring into the talks the people who are engaged in and conducting the conflict. The problem, of course, was that the political parties in Northern Ireland, which were not affiliated with militias, they called them the constitutional parties didn't want to sit with those who did have such connections. And they wanted the total disarmament of the paramilitary organizations before the talks could start. The phrase became adopted, the decommissioning of weapons in advance of the talks. So that became the British government's policy. But there was a lot of opposition to it, a lot of confusion, doubt, and disagreement. And so the UK Prime Minister John Major asked me and uh, two other of my colleagues, one, the former Prime Minister of Finland, Harry Holkery, who was selected by the Irish government, and the other, General John de Chastellane of Canada. He had been the chief of the Canadian Defence Forces and then the Canadian ambassador to the United States. So I was named the chairman and my two colleagues with me were asked by the UK and Irish prime ministers to conduct a thorough review of this issue and to make recommendations on how the parties could engage in negotiations. We began immediately, this was about the 1st of December uh, 1995, and the prime ministers set a tight deadline, they said they wanted a report within 60 days. So Prime Minister Ho General de Chastelain, and I spent pretty much most of those two months, except for a very brief break at Christmas, in Northern Ireland, meeting with and interviewing a very large number of individuals and political leaders, business leaders, community leaders, trying to get a sense of how this process could proceed. It became very clear early and was confirmed uh, through our talks over two months that there was very little support in any part of northern ireland for the concept of prior decommissioning even those who supported it acknowledged to us that it was unlikely to be acceptable to the parties affiliated with paramilitaries so we had to search for an alternative mechanism how to satisfy the concerns and fears of the constitutional parties that when the parties affiliated with paramilitaries entered the talks, they would not do so under circumstances where the first time they were frustrated, they would activate their paramilitaries. That would really be inducing more conflict rather than preventing more conflict. So to deal with that, we recommended a set of principles. They came to be known as the Mitchell Principles in which any party entering the talks had to publicly acknowledge and commit to opposition to any use of force or terror and to support democratic and peaceful approaches to the disagreements that they had. This was intended to be a way to reassure the constitutional parties and the public that the political parties affiliated with paramilitaries would not use the existence of those paramilitaries as a threat during the talks, that they had to come in and publicly commit to democratic principles and to renounce the use of violence. It was not decommissioning. They didn't give up their weapons at that time, but we recommended that the talks start if they would agree to that, and then gradually, as time proceeded, both the negotiations and the decommissioning could occur in parallel.
0: Coming up in the next episode of As I Remember It, we'll hear why the DUP walked out. When Sinn Féin were being allowed in without having made any concession whatsoever, we came out at that stage, and indeed it was the agreement between the three unionist leaders that they would all come out of that stage, but David Trimble went back on the, the agreement and uh, it was only Bob McCartney and Ian Paisley took their teams out. Why Sinn Féin finally got a seat at the table?
1: After, I think, 18 months, it was very obvious, certainly to the IRA, that this wasn't going anywhere.
0: And how my colleagues in the Irish government worked to bring peace in Northern Ireland.
2: Originally, I had been appointed as Minister of State at the Department of Foreign Affairs with responsibility for overseas development and human rights. So this was an added remit that my party leader had given to me. She'd contacted me on the phone one day and said, in the context of other party matters, she says, and by the way, you're doing the North.
0: As I remember it, it's a News Talk original podcast. The executive producer is Mark Simpson. The producers, Jess Kelly and Sandra Honan. Sound mixing... Lachlan Hart Archive audio used in this episode was from RTE BBC and ITN Go to newstalk.com forward slash Good Friday Agreement for bonus material including full interviews videos, a timeline of the peace process and a glossary of who's who in the Good Friday Agreement